This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, and I'm Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in Goldman Sachs Research. In this episode, we're going to discuss the Delta variant and how the fast-spreading virus is affecting the path of reopening and economic growth more broadly. To do that, I'm sitting down with my colleagues in research, Terrence Flynn in our healthcare group, and Dan Struven from our economics team. We'll first turn to Terrence Flynn, who covers the U.S. biopharma sector in GS Research, for his thoughts on the Delta variant and vaccines. Terrence, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Allison. Really appreciate the invite. So the Delta variant seems to be driving yet another wave of coronavirus cases. Obviously, the news is dominated by the spread of it. So just to start, why is the Delta variant so worrisome? Sure. So as most people know by now, the virus changes over time. And, you know, there have been a number of these different variants that have arisen over the course of the pandemic. Delta is obviously the latest one. And the thing about Delta is it's more transmissible. So it basically has the ability to spread much more rapidly. And so, for example, when a person's infected with Delta, they can infect a greater number of people than a person who was infected with one of the earlier strains of the virus. And for this reason, it's why it's become the predominant strain around the globe. This also means that you could become infected during a shorter period of exposure. And so that really relates to the fact that Delta leads to higher levels of virus in people. So as a result, even if you come in contact with someone who has the Delta variant and you're not vaccinated, you could become infected over you know, a very short period of exposure versus some of the prior strains of the virus where it might take longer for you to become infected. So those are two of the reasons. The third one is essentially relates to something that relates to the vaccination. So even if you're vaccinated, people are able to spread the Delta variant. And that's a little bit different from before with some of the earlier strains of the virus, where if you were vaccinated, it was very unlikely that you would be able to spread the infection via asymptomatic infection. So, you know, some differences here with Delta, and that's why there's such a big focus on it now. And, you know, the reason why it's spreading so rapidly. So what do we know about how well the current vaccines hold up against the Delta variant? Yeah, it's obviously a great question, very topical. I mean, we're fortunate to have vaccines now at this point in the pandemic. And so I'd say just to level set to remind people here about, you know, some of the differences when we talk about protection. Remember, there are these asymptomatic infections. So those are essentially you have the virus in your body, but you don't show any outward symptoms. You can't really even tell that you have an infection. Then there are symptomatic infections. So essentially, that's what's referred to as COVID-19 or the disease that the virus causes. Those are feverish symptoms. You feel bad for a few days. And then there's severe COVID-19 disease, essentially the disease that could lead to hospitalization and poor outcomes. So essentially, it's a spectrum. And so I'll talk a lot about you know the efficacy first about symptomatic infections, and then we'll go on to severe disease. But I think now we do have a lot of real-world data that are emerging from a number of different countries. Bottom line is the vaccine protection is still very robust after double vaccination. So if you've gotten two vaccinations, you're in pretty good shape in terms of protection against Delta. But if you've only had a single vaccination, the protection levels are much lower. So, for example, there was a study that was done in the UK where they looked at the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, showed 88% protection of symptomatic COVID-19 after your second dose against the Delta variant. Now, if we look back to, you know, the earlier time point in the pandemic when we had the Alpha variant that was spreading, efficacy of this vaccine was just over 90%, 93%. So not a big change there in terms of efficacy. But if you look at single dose vaccination, the efficacy against Delta is only about 30%. 
So a big step down there. So again, very important for people to be double vaccinated to get that protection against Delta. Now, there is some more recent data that emerged out of Israel, and this shows that there, even after double vaccination, the efficacy against symptomatic COVID has pulled back to about 40%. So that's in contrast to that, you know, 80% plus figure I cited previously out of the UK. Now, one of the questions is maybe this has to do with the time frame of vaccination. As many people know, Israel was at the leading edge of the global vaccination campaign, and so there could be some of a waning effect of the vaccines over time. And so that's one thing that, again, the companies are studying, we're gathering more data on to fully understand that. Now, as we shift to look at severe disease, remember, as I mentioned before, this is a spectrum, right? So again, here, importantly, I think the message is the vaccine efficacy against severe disease and hospitalization is still around 90%, even with the Delta variant. And that comes from some data out of both Israel and Canada. So that's very encouraging. And so bottom line is if you're double vaccinated, have very good protection against Delta, especially against severe disease and hospitalization. And that's obviously a big focus of the healthcare system, because when we talked about these lockdowns and different measures that countries are taking, it relates to really trying to preserve that healthcare system capacity. And so given the vaccine efficacy we're seeing here out of Israel and Canada, very encouraging protection against severe disease. Let me just follow up to that because obviously we have Pfizer, we have Moderna, we have other vaccines around the world. Are there any very material differences between these vaccines? So I'd say bottom line, it looks like the messenger RNA vaccine. So Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna are somewhat better than the adenoviral vaccines, those from AstraZeneca and J&J for symptomatic COVID-19. So again, that kind of symptomatic disease. But all four of these vaccines look to be very, very good against severe disease and hospitalization. So not as much of a difference there. And remember, that's the big focus of the healthcare system is ensuring that we're protected against severe disease and hospitalization. So less differentiation among the vaccines on that front. We're hearing that the severity of illness for breakthrough infections, so meaning vaccinated people getting the infections, is actually lower. Is that true? What does the evidence say around that? Yet, obviously, another very important topic here, and everyone's probably seen a lot of different headlines on this. So, look, you know, vaccine breakthroughs are still generally rare, but unfortunately, they do happen. Now, the flip side of it is if you do have a breakthrough infection, the symptoms and duration of illness is likely much less severe than it would be if you aren't vaccinated. And there's some data that's emerged on this front from earlier in the pandemic that suggests if you do have a breakthrough infection, you still have about 60% lower flu-like symptoms than unvaccinated people and about two fewer days spent in bed versus someone who's unvaccinated. So bottom line is still very rare to see breakthrough infections, but if you do have a breakthrough infection, the symptoms are much less severe. And again, I want to stress that, you know, these vaccines do a very good job against protecting against severe disease and hospitalization. And there's some recent CDC data out on this front that's been collected in the U.S. through the end of July. So basically more than 160 million people in the U.S. have been fully vaccinated. Now, during that same time, the CDC has been collecting data on hospitalizations and breakthrough infections. And essentially over that time, about 6,600 people have had a breakthrough infection that led to hospitalization or death. So 6,600 out of 160 million people. So very, very rare to see these severe breakthrough infections. So bottom line is the vaccines work very, very well. 
breakthrough infection can happen, unfortunately, but the vaccines do a great job at protecting against the most severe outcomes. We're also hearing a lot about booster shots. So, you know, should individuals be getting another dose of the vaccine, you know, heading into the fall and winter? So what's the latest on that? Yeah, it's a very important question and an evolving topic here that we're following very closely. So I'd say just to start at a high level, there's two reasons why boosters might be needed. The first is waning immunity. And so that's what you know we were talking about a little bit before with respect to some of the data emerging out of Israel is if you know people got vaccinated earlier on in the pandemic, their immune system might not have as robust a response as we go out further in time. The second reason why you might need a booster is if there's a new variant that comes up that circumvents the protection that the vaccines provide. And if we look at seasonal flu as an analog, that's the reason why every flu season we need a new flu vaccination because the virus changes over the course of time. Every season, there's a new strain of it that comes up. As a result, we need a new vaccine to kind of counter that strain of the virus, right? So those are the primary two reasons why we need booster shots. Now, what we know right now is that for COVID-19, it does look like boosters have a role to play here in high-risk populations. So these would be people that are immunocompromised. So let's say someone had an organ transplant or they have an immune system disorder or they're on immunosuppressant drugs like steroids or the elderly, the older population. And now some countries are actually moving in this direction already, as people have already seen, Israel, Germany, and I think even France more recently recommending boosters for those higher risk populations. Now in the US, the CDC is still reviewing the emerging data that's coming out of the various companies in terms of the follow-up data. And they host these panels, the ACIP panels, probably once or twice a month. These are bodies of experts that review the data and then they would make a recommendation. So ultimately, I would expect by, you know, maybe later this summer, early fall, we'd have some kind of update from the CDC regarding the outlook for boosters in the U.S. In terms of what we model from a Pfizer perspective, we're assuming boosters in the elderly or high-risk population on an annual basis and then every other year in younger adults. But obviously, we're you know, looking forward to seeing additional clinical data here over the course of the rest of this year. The last point I'd make is that Pfizer is planning to file for an EUA with FDA in August for a booster dose, and then they'd file XUS as well kind of after that. But just to clarify, when we say booster shots, are we talking about getting another shot of the same formulation or are companies actively providing new formulations with higher efficacy to the newer strains? So, you know, when we think about it, there are two different types of booster shots that the companies are working on. The first would be a third dose of the same vaccine you got your first time around. And so that would be a third shot, you know, six, 12 months later. So that would be the first type of booster. The second would be a different formulation of the vaccine that is tailored specifically to address one of these newer strains of the virus. So for example, Pfizer and Moderna both have programs looking at boosters against the beta variant. Pfizer has also talked more recently about starting a trial looking specifically at a Delta booster vaccine. They don't think we'll need it, but again, part of what the work the companies are doing is laying the groundwork so that in the event there is a new variant that emerges that the vaccines have less efficacy against and we need one of these new strains, the companies know from a regulatory perspective what to do and how to navigate that pathway to bring this to the market in as quickly and safely a manner as possible. So 
a lot of the work going on by these companies now related to these kind of next-gen vaccines are really to lay that regulatory groundwork so that in the event we need it, they'll be prepared. So as we enter this next wave of infections, what do you see as the next stage of vaccine development? Sure. So I'd say definitely the boosters are front and center right now. I think, you know, a lot of efforts at the companies on that front and making sure that the global community is monitoring for different variants. And so that if there is one that does come up that, you know, we have a more significant loss of efficacy against, the companies can then develop that next gen vaccine very rapidly. So that's definitely, I think, one of the major efforts. The second one is obviously the manufacturing. I mean, these companies, as you know, Elson, have really been under tremendous pressure to ramp their manufacturing capacity to meet the global demand here. And typically, these companies have a number of years to do that. Given the pandemic, they had 12 months to do this. And so they're still in the process of increasing their production capacity. And so that's another big focus at the companies right now, where they're you know, all hoping to be able to increase production into 2022. The other one, which is more of a longer term effort, is to come up with a combination vaccine. So essentially, if we do need more frequent boosters with a COVID-19 vaccine, there's the potential to combine that with a seasonal flu vaccine. And so that would be a so-called multivalent vaccine. And so essentially, instead of getting, you know, one shot for each, you could go into the doctor or pharmacy and you could get a single vaccination for all this. So essentially combining some of these vaccines into one to make it more convenient for people. Thank you so much for breaking this all down for us, Terrence. Unfortunately, it does sound like we're entering or really have already entered a new chapter of this coronavirus, but we really appreciate all your insight. Thanks so much, Allison. Really appreciate the invite. We'll now speak to Dan Struben, a senior economist in the Global Economics Research Group. Dan, welcome to the program. Thanks, Allison, for having me. Dan, we just spoke to Terrence, who provided a relatively reassuring picture about the extent to which vaccines are providing protection against the Delta variant. But give us the update in terms of where things really stand. Where are Delta variant risks rising and where are they receding? Yeah, so globally, the virus picture is pretty mixed, both in DMs and EMs. In developed markets, the news is mostly positive in Europe, especially the UK. The UK is a fascinating case study to follow. Cases are down 50% since the peak. New hospital admissions are starting to decline. And this happened after full reopening. And we also just got new July PMI data showing that the economy is re-accelerating following the peak in cases and full reopening. I expect that most of Europe will follow the UK trajectory with a lag, and you're starting to see that cases are peaking or have started to decline in other European economies that were exposed first to Delta, most notably Spain, but also Portugal and the Netherlands. The rest of Europe seems to lag. Cases are still rising in France, Italy, and Germany, although the case levels are fairly low in Germany. So overall, I would say that uh, Europe news is positive, especially in the UK. Moving to the US... The news is somewhat negative, I would say, on net. And you have very large differences across regions. Although at the national level, we now have 55,000 people in hospitals, you have huge differences across states depending on the vaccination rates. For instance, in Florida, one individual out of 2,000 is now hospitalized for COVID. It's it's a staggering number. That number is only one out of 100,000 in Vermont. So huge differences across states depending primarily on the vaccination rates. You know, we do think that the increase in the spread of the Delta variant is going to weigh moderately on growth in the U.S., mostly because of consumer risk aversion. 
primarily among the vaccinated individuals, in fact. We just got a Gallup new poll showing that the share of Americans that feels protected has dropped from 50% last month to now 38%. And what's fascinating is that the people who are really scared feel unprotected are the fully vaccinated individuals. And people who feel safe are the people who don't plan to get vaccinated. So I think risk aversion is very important in the economic effects, knowing only about objective medical risk here. So you mentioned the huge discrepancy in terms of hospitalization rates between certain states like Florida and Vermont. What does that look like in terms of vaccination rate discrepancies? Yeah, so the the gaps are huge. And the correlation between, on the one hand, vaccination rates and on the other hand, hospitalization rates is very large and negative. The vaccination rate of the full population, for instance, in Alabama is around 43%, whereas in the Northeast, places like Vermont, Massachusetts, more than 90% of the adult population is vaccinated. And so you have these pretty large discrepancies, and they correlate incredibly well with hospitalization rates. But I think there are some interesting dynamics here. The fact that you still have high virus transmission in, for instance, Florida or Alabama, I think is indirectly also weighing somewhat on the recovery in high vaccination states, because people also respond to the national news cycle. We actually did some statistical work showing that the impact of the national virus situation on your consumer behavior is actually larger than the impact of your local virus situation, as at least that was the case last year before vaccinations. And so I do think that it matters and is consistent with a slowing in the consumption recovery we have in our forecast. So just because I'm hearing bad news out of Florida on the trajectory of the virus, sitting here in New York might be more hesitant to go to a restaurant, for example, even though I'm fully vaccinated and rates are lower. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So you actually lowered some of your forecasts based on the Delta variant trajectory, right? I mean, so what really did then factor into that? Yeah, so we have lowered our U.S. growth forecasts moderately. We shaved off our consumption growth in the second half by 2 percentage points annualized, primarily on the back of a slower recovery in the consumer services sector as lingering virus fears continue, but also because the return to office is going to be quite a bit slower than what we initially envisioned. And so the office-adjacent economy, think the restaurants around the office, for instance, are still well below full utilization levels. So primary reason for the growth downgrade is a slower consumption recovery on the back of Delta, but also bottlenecks that are a bit more persistent than expected, including in housing. So a lot of variation in the developed market world. What about in the emerging market world? What are you seeing there? Even more variation across economies. With somewhat positive news in most of Latin America, actually, outside of Mexico, in most large Latin American economies, cases are coming down. Vaccination rates in Latin America, and especially natural immunity rates, are among the highest in the world. And that's a very sharp contrast with Asia-Pacific, which did very well in 2020, controlling the virus through policy restrictions. But as a result, natural immunity rates in Asia-Pacific are lower. They got started late with vaccination efforts. And in most Asia-Pacific economies, the virus situation is deteriorating. We sharply cut our forecasts, for instance, in India a few months ago, ASEAN region, Japan, Australia, and now the big focus is on China, where the number of cases has been rising pretty quickly at still fairly low levels, but with a much more transmissible strain. There's just a lot of uncertainty whether zero COVID is achievable, even in China, which presumably is one of the most effective countries in the world to contain the virus. So lots of uncertainty around China growth in the third quarter here. When you look at the emerging market world, is the lower vaccination pace mostly a result of supply, or are you also seeing vaccine hesitancy taking hold in those areas? So it's mostly supply. 
In a few countries, it's also a distributional constraint in some of the Asian economies, but it's primarily supply. What's actually remarkable is that demand, vaccine demand, seems to be stronger on average in emerging markets than in developed markets. If you sort of look across the world, compare the actual vaccination rates and the survey data, countries that score really high in terms of vaccine demand are the UK, Spain, but also Brazil and several other emerging markets. And on the low end, you find certain states in the US, France, Japan, Australia, and Russia. Although recently, we're starting to see pickups in vaccine demand, primarily in the places where demand initially was low, as a result of policy changes and a result of outbreaks. So put this all together for us. Where was our global growth forecast, let's say, you know, three months ago before Delta took yep. hold? Where is it now? Yes, yeah, so we have lowered our growth forecast somewhat since the emergence of Delta in April. But what's the most remarkable is that the gap between our global growth forecast for this year and consensus has shrunk quite a bit from around a full percentage point, which is a lot, to just three tenths. At this point, you know, this narrowing in the gap reflects both downgrades to our own forecasts in many economies, but also upgrades to the consensus, who I think has been a little slower in sort of adopting a positive view on vaccinations and on U.S. fiscal stimulus. The largest growth downgrades have been in Asia Pacific, especially ASEAN. The biggest downgrades were, for instance, in the Philippines or Thailand, who are not only suffering from high virus transmissions and restrictions, but also a very slow global tourism recovery. You know, also notable downgrades in the US on the back of Delta, but also on the back of bottlenecks in housing, in the labor market, and in the goods sector. Our growth forecasts have been fairly stable in Europe. We're still pretty bullish on Europe. And actually, in LATAM, our forecasts have increased. At this point, the two biggest differences between our global growth views and the consensus is, one, we're more selectively bullish. And sort of the only places where we're really a lot above consensus are places where there's a lot of room for vaccine-driven reopening, most notably Spain, Southern Europe, but also India. And second, the second most notable feature of our global growth forecast is just the sharpness of the U.S. growth deceleration, where we essentially returned from around 7% growth this summer to a potential like pace of one and a half to 2% in the second half of next year, on the back of slower reopening and a fiscal impulse that turns from sharply positive to negative in the back half of next year. And I'm thinking about risks. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it does feel like the Delta variant and maybe other variants still are the biggest risk to our growth outlook, even yep. one that is now embedding a sharp deceleration in growth in the US, for example. But are there other risks that you're also monitoring? So the biggest downside risk is the emergence of a new strain that would be more transmissible outcompete Delta, but also sharply lower the ability of vaccines to prevent hospitalizations. I think the Delta risk is a quantifiable risk because we know that you can still prevent hospitalizations, which implies that in high vaccination economies, restrictions should be limited. But the virus has mutated quite a lot. You know, we were not talking about alpha until December of last year. We started speaking about Delta in April, and who knows? There's a lot of global virus circulation. So according to experts, it's a plausible risk. The other big downside risk to global growth is also related indirectly to the pandemic. And I would characterize it as a slower recovery of the global supply side of the economy, both in the goods sector, but also in the U.S. labor market. On the goods sector, our baseline view is that inventories will be rebuilt in the coming months and that you should get a nice boost to growth from global inventory reformation, which has really weighed on growth in the U.S. or Germany or France in the second quarter. So you're just basically talking about like all the supply shortages we're talking about. We're running out of a lot of things exactly. um, and you know the implications of that. Okay. Yeah. So that could take longer than expected. Inventory levels are really low. 
And if a lot of the Asian Pacific economies continue to struggle with lower vaccination rates and potentially also zero COVID policies that are really hard to achieve, it could just take longer for the global industrial sector to recover. Similarly, our baseline view in the US on the labor market is quite bullish. We expect unemployment rate to fall from 5.9% to the low 4% this year on the back primarily of the expiration of the generous federal unemployment benefit top-ups, but also rising vaccination rates. It could take longer, perhaps that there are more complex reasons why people are not back at work. People are sort of potentially revisiting their priorities post-pandemic between work, leisure, money, family, health. And so I think a slower U.S. labor market recovery is also something I worry about, and we're going to learn a lot in the next few months. Right. And from that, ultimately, it's just, are there people to service the industries that had been lagging? And if there aren't, there could be a constraint on growth. But ultimately, we're expecting that to fade. Exactly. Thank you so much for the update, Dan. Let's hope we don't have another variant coming our way, but we appreciate you being here. Thanks, Allison, for having me. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and comment. This podcast was recorded on August 4th and 5th, 2021. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.